Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Gavin Tolometti. And I'm your guest today, Corey Goldstein. And welcome to GradCast. Well, thank you very much, Corey. That was an excellent introduction. You are mic ready. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, we were obviously uber prepared today to interview a guest today from the philosophy department. And uh, we're really excited to hear what he has to say about ethics and clinical trials. And I'll let him just go ahead and give us an overview of what he does. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Ariel. So as I said, my name is Corey Goldstein, and I'm a doctoral candidate from the Rotman Institute of Philosophy here at Western University. And what I do is research ethics. Um, so broadly, what that is, is I think about and work on issues ethical issues as they relate to the design and conduct of health-related clinical trials. Uh, research ethics broadly can involve you know, animal ethics, um, but I work specifically on ethical issues as they arise in human participant trials. What kind of clinical trials are we talking about here? Yeah, I think that kind of traditionally when people think of medical research or medical trials, what they're thinking of is, all right, we have this new drug, we want to see if it works. So we're going to test it against a placebo or no drug, and we're going to do so by individually randomizing individuals to kind of new drug A or randomizing them to placebo B. Um, but this is not really the kind of work that I do. The clinical trials that I focus on try and answer questions that have to do with evaluating treatments or procedures that occur in usual clinical practice. Uh, these are kind of everyday treatments that we want to see which is more effective for patients, uh, which are more cost-effective for health systems. Uh, and the idea is to do these trials to improve uh, patient outcomes, right, and to improve our healthcare and our health systems. Uh, so you mentioned a couple of um, everyday uh, procedures that you look at. Uh, do you want to maybe give a couple of examples that you focus on for your research? Yeah, absolutely. I think that examples really help to illustrate what I'm talking about when I mentioned kind of pragmatic trials. So pragmatic trials are trials that look to evaluate the effectiveness of kind of usual care treatments as they happen in everyday practice with kind of the goal of improving outcomes for patients, for our health systems, and for health providers. One example in the area that I work in is in hemodialysis, which has to do with kind of end-stage kidney disease. You have your option. This life-saving treatment is hemodialysis. And one question that we still don't really know an answer to is what is the optimal time to be receiving dialysis, right? So usually it's between three and a half to four and a half hours, three times a week. But there are some kind of evidence, some small evidence to suggest that longer dialysis, slower dialysis is better, right? So when I'm talking about comparing usual care treatments, I'm talking about trials that ask the question, as I've just described, you know, what's the optimal time to be receiving hemodialysis? And what you would do is you would have one treatment arm be your usual care. So whatever you're already getting in clinical practice. Your other arm is going to be prescribing a treatment time of at least four hours and 15 minutes three times a week, right? And the hope of doing research like this is to get an answer to this kind of socially important question. Namely, how long should one be on dialysis for? So I guess, I mean, as you say, it sounds pragmatic. You have to uh, find a way to make our practices, you know, more efficient and better for the patient. 
you can't just say we've got what we've got and we're going to stick to it because that's what I was taught to do and that's what my parents were taught to do and that's what we're all going to do. You have to test out new ways of doing the same things. Yeah, in, in some sense, I guess, you know, some people might be wondering where the philosophy comes into this, right? Because I am a philosopher. And here's usually the way that I, I depict what I do. So, you know, as, as I've described this trial, what I'm describing is kind of socially valuable research, right? What I mean is that kind of the reason we do any research is so that we can generate new knowledge, right? This is new knowledge about treatments, new knowledge about diseases, and all the research that we do kind of contributes or or hopefully contributes or produces generalizable knowledge that's going to improve healthcare, health globally. Um, but any research that you do, especially research that involves human participants, will pose at least some risks to those who are participating. So kind of the philosophical question at the heart of research ethics is, how do you ethically justify exposing some people to risks for the benefit of others. And the traditional kind of answer or part of the traditional answer that's been given is by respecting the autonomy of those who are participating in trials, right? And what that means in practice is that by getting their informed consent, by explaining to them what the research is about, how the research is being done, what are the risks, what are the benefits, what are the alternatives to participating, in this way, we allow people to adopt the ends of research as their own and by giving informed consent, they're autonomously authorizing their participation. But we have, we have this new kind of research that I've been describing, right? what I've called pragmatic trials. And these trials are designed in ways in which traditional trials are not. So traditional trials will randomize individuals to drug A and drug B, but kind of some of the trials that I work in adopt different designs or what are called cluster designs. So instead of randomizing individuals to drug A or drug B, you're randomizing entire hospitals, let's say, to adopt policy A or policy B. And the example I gave will do something like this. So let me, let me just give another example. So there is this question about what temperature people who are on dialysis should receive. Uh, usually in a lot of clinics, it's given at body temperature, but there is some small yet growing evidence to suggest that lowering the temperature of the dialysis by 0.5 degrees will actually improve the health of patients. So how do you answer this question? Well, right now in Ontario, we have a trial going on which randomizes, I believe, 80 of our 92 hemodialysis facilities to adopt a policy of giving everyone in their clinic 0.5 degrees less than their body temperature or the other 40 clinics doing what it is that they're already doing. And in this way, we can compare whether or not less than body temperature is better than not. But the way that they're doing this trial is without seeking informed consent. And this, this is what makes it interesting, right? It's this question of well, kind of the way we've been traditionally protecting patients is by getting their informed consent. Is it ethically permissible at all to do this kind of research? And if so, when? So kind of the tagline for my thesis is when does the social value of conducting research outweigh our need to respect individual patient autonomy? So for instance, this trial isn't just not obtaining consent for no reason. 
right? Trialists have very good arguments for why no consent's being obtained. And the technical language here is called obtaining a waiver of consent, right? So they've talked to multiple research ethics boards to obtain a waiver of consent, which requires certain criteria be met, one of which is that the trial procedures will pose no more than minimal risk to those who are participating, that there is social value in conducting this research, and that it is, in fact, impracticable to obtain informed consent, mm. right, given the research yeah. question. So when we think about the risks of this kind of research, well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the difference between the, the usual risks you'd receive in practice versus the risks associated with lowering the temperature, which, I mean, one of which is you'll feel a lot colder while receiving dialysis, right, which for some is, is very unpleasant to say the least. But you think, you know, is, is this a minimal risk kind of trial, right? Mm -hmm. And they have arguments for suggesting that it is. I think that the criteria, for instance, for social value seems pretty obvious. I mean, if you do answer this question, you're talking about saving the healthcare system millions of dollars, right? You're talking about improving the lives of patients substantially. I think the question of impracticability is an interesting one. And it's very much under-theorized in research ethics. So what makes obtaining consent impracticable? Is it that, well, since we're essentially randomizing clinics before we've even identified the people who are going to be in them, does, does that make it impracticable? Or once we've identified the people who are in the trial, if we had to hire research personnel to go around and explain the trial to everyone, and ask everyone for their informed consent, I mean, this is going to cost us millions of dollars, right? And kind of a well-known problem with research is recruitment, right? If we're already having trouble in research recruiting people to participate, I mean, these trials and the way they're designed, I mean, it's about including everyone who's in a clinic. So, I mean, there are some reasons we might think that these trials are okay, and I mean that as ethically okay, to conduct as they kind of meet our regulatory criteria. But the question of impracticability is an interesting one. Um, this is likely to do with the first chapter of my thesis. I'm answering questions about when are waivers of consent with these types of trials um, appropriate, right? And um, might they be broadly appropriate for all this research that we're talking about? Um, you know, it comes to mind uh, that that although um, categorizing trials in this kind of framework may be uh, quite a unique perspective, uh, there may have been trials that were done like this in the past. Uh, you know, unknowing, uh, not knowing to to categorize it in this way. Is there any examples where where this has you know, in retrospect, you can look back and say, hey, this trial was done that way, uh, and they didn't get. Um, informed consent, and this was this was excellent because of X, Y, and Z. Or, or here was an example where we didn't get informed consent, and and it actually wasn't a good idea. And we should have in that case. Do we have do we have examples of that? Um, maybe before I answer your question, I'll need to explain a little bit more about kind of trials generally. Mm -hmm. um, so the way uh, trials are are done in some sense, 
are on a spectrum from what are called explanatory or mechanistic trials to pragmatic trials. And these are just attitudes people have towards trials. So explanatory trials are trials that try to answer a question like, does X work? Where X is some new drug or new procedure. Um, this is kind of the traditional way we've been doing trials for, for many, many years. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum are what are called pragmatic trials. And these are trials that are trying to answer the question, is X better than Y? Or is X more effective than Y? Right, where X and Y are treatments or procedures that are used in everyday practice. Now, this distinction, the explanatory pragmatic spectrum, was first depicted in 1967 in a paper by Schwartz and Lelouch. So to kind of answer your question, I mean, I think that explanatory and pragmatic trials, although not really uh, explicitly defined in that way until 1967 may have been happening, um, the rise of kind of pragmatic trials didn't happen until about 2001. And the reason for that was, I mean, we didn't have kind of a lot of evidence on a, on a level of how does this drug interact with the human body and things like that for a long time. But as we've been conducting more research through the 20th century, we've kind of developed a lot of drugs and we've developed a lot of treatments and we've developed a lot of procedures. And now we're starting to ask these questions about which is more effective. And why I said 2001 is in the US, the, the Institute of Medicine kind of called for a transition to a learning health system in which there's kind of increased funding for comparative effectiveness research, right? Or pragmatic trials. These are research that compare the effectiveness of two treatments or procedures. Um, it, it almost sounds like, well, I mean, it's it's excellent that we are we are accounting for new knowledge. We're saying okay, we have an immense amount of new knowledge, new science, and this may mean that we have to look at trials in a different way. And does it does it mean that our our standards are 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 different because we have so much more understanding <laughs> of the science underneath it? Because it, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, in terms of ha has our kind of ethics changed as we've moved from kind of doing research in ideal laboratory settings to research in the real world. And I think not. Um, I guess I, mean, I was I was talking about the, the, the switch in 2001 um, in, in saying, well, we we now have so many so many um, different methods that we go about doing and we have a more understanding of how they work fundamentally that we can then compare them more like more specifically this this method versus this other method. I think that's right to some extent. There are many reasons we're seeing a push towards conducting more pragmatic trials. I mean, some of the reasons might be because we have more evidence for certain treatments and procedures. Um, but there are still a lot of things that we don't have treatments and procedures for. And a lot of trials are still designed in very explanatory ways. Um, but we have, for instance, new technology like electronic health records, right? If we know you have a particular disease because we've looked through your medical records, we can approach you. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but I'm trying to say that there are lots of reasons we do. We're moving towards pragmatic trials that just aren't because of funding, but because of technological advances, because of rise in evidence for our everyday treatments and procedures, for new evidence that's coming out. I'm guessing it would probably also play into that it's better to compare two 
two different things that supposedly do the same thing rather than just trying to figure out if one thing can do something without realizing how effective or ineffective it could be. I think, you know, I think we got a pretty decent grasp on the differences between the trials. No, another question would be what, what interested you in getting into this? What, what brought you here to Western study the philosophy behind these kinds of questions? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I, studied philosophy as an undergraduate student at McGill University, and I loved it. Uh, It challenged me to develop skills like reading carefully, thinking critically, reasoning, arguing, right? These are traditional philosophical skills. But when I finished my undergraduate degree or when I was in my fourth year, I wasn't convinced that I needed to continue doing philosophy, which in the broad sense at that time was trying to answer complex theoretical questions. It was interesting, but I didn't want to make a career out of it. And about six months after I graduated, I missed academia. I missed the conversations with my peers, the traditional philosophical questions that we tend to ask (laughs) ourselves, like, uh, you know, the colors you see the same as the colors that I see. You know, I missed things like that. (laughs) And I wanted to go back to school and continue to study philosophy but I wanted to do something that would make changes in the world, right? And it was just by chance that at at kind of this critical time in my life when I was wanting to go back to school, but I didn't know for what, that a good friend of mine invited me to a talk that was going on in kind of the bioethics field. And the talk was given by James Overton and kind of the mediator for the talk was a man named Spencer Hay, who's a philosopher down at at Harvard University now. And uh, after the talk, I I spoke with Spencer. I had at the time been accepted to Western University, and he did his PhD in philosophy here at Western. Uh, So I went and I I was asking him questions like, you know, I got accepted to Western, some other schools, why Western? And he told me, uh, you know, why Western? I can't tell you, but there's someone at Western who you should meet uh, if you're interested in, in doing philosophy as you've described in a very practical way. Uh, and he told me to get in touch with Professor Charles Vare, who is my current supervisor and mentor. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I, I reached out, I looked him up, I saw that he was part of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy. And at the time he was working on two projects. One was in neuroscience and the ethics of neuroscience. Um, it had flashy pictures of brains with fMRI scans. And the other project was on clinical trials. And I read about both, and I managed to get a Skype call with him. Uh, And during that conversation, he asked me, you know, of the two projects, what, what was I interested in? And I said, clinical trials. And he said, no one says that. (laughs) <laughs> you, you have flashy fMRI scans of brains. You know, you're not interested in that. And I said, no, uh, primarily because, you know, when reading the work that he was doing on uh, what are called cluster randomized trials, um, what he was doing with the interdisciplinary research team that he worked with uh, was solving complex real world problems. Um, and that's that's why I came to Western, was to do exactly that. And it just turned out that he 
uh, offered me a research assistant position um, when I came to start my master's. I actually came three months early because I'm a keener and I wanted to get working. <laughs> and I, I remember I moved to London on June 6th, 2015. And on June 7th, I went and met our interdisciplinary research team that I continue to this day to work with. Um, this is a team that comprises Dean Ferguson, a trialist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, uh, epidemiologists and biostatisticians such as Monica Talliard, uh, scientists like Jamie Braho, Jeremy Grimshaw, that are all have excelled profoundly in their fields. And I was kind of exposed to a world of philosophy that I didn't know, which was philosophy in an interdisciplinary room, right? And this was engaging the scientific community in a way that I didn't think was possible as a philosopher. Well, I mean, I have to say that's uh, quite a one slight inspirational and a motivated like way you managed to get into what you love doing now with philosophy and moving it towards a more practical view for clinical trials. Yeah, what's interesting right. about what I do is it's almost, in some sense, exactly the same as what I was doing in undergrad. I'm continuing to develop my skills in reading and thinking critically, reasoning. Now I'm developing skills in working with others, right? I don't just work with scientists, but I work with patients, right? I work with uh, people who work on our research ethics board, um, you know, and, and we together you know, use these skills to answer complex real world problems. Um, and that's why I love philosophy is that it's forever <laughs> learning, forever asking questions, and in this case, working with others to solve them. So, so uh, I'm kind of excited to find out what, where you're going to apply uh, all these skills uh, after your, I mean, that's kind of a daunting question. No, not but, at uh, all. I, I think that's kind of a question that most grad students fear. You know, the question of what's next. Mm -hmm. How I see my PhD is a learning process, right? What a PhD should be is developing skills to become a professional, whether academic or not academic. And I am very fortunate to have a supportive supervisor who's providing me with all of these experiences and opportunities and teaching me these skills that are broadly applicable. So if I wanted to go the non-academic route, you know, you see things from Google's deep mind that are hiring research ethicists to think through the complex issues of developing AI and how that'll interact with people. In terms of academia, um, yes, the job market is dismal and it's tough for every graduate student to face this reality that there might not be a job out there for you. But that's not something I worry about because what I worry about is developing the skills that will make me a good candidate, right? Whether that's speaking at conferences regularly, whether that's publishing regularly, whether that's networking, which is a huge part. And I am very fortunate to travel the world to a lot of different places and present my work to a lot of different people and network constantly. And the idea, for instance, if I want to stay in academia, get a postdoc somewhere, isn't about you know, waiting for a job to come up in the job market and apply for it. It's about working with the right people who can create that job or those jobs. Um, and that's part of what I try and do with my work.
Wow, I never, I, it never, <laughs> it never occurred to me that you know, there doesn't have to be a job available. You can just go tell someone I want a job there, make one for me. Well, <laughs> uh, th- think, <laughs> think, about, think about it. Think about it this way, right? There's <laughs> this huge complaint that there's no jobs out there for the millennials. So what do they do? They start these new companies. What are they called? These startups. Startups, <laughs> right? Yeah, start new companies. No jobs exist. So what do the millennials do? They make jobs for themselves, right? And and I think we could do this in grad school. It's way easier said than done. And, you know, academia, I mean, in philosophy, it tends to be very old school way of thinking, right? In philosophy, what's important is single authored papers. And to approach a philosophy department and say, hey, you know, I've published a lot, but I work in a research team, right? It's quite different. And this isn't something that we've seen a lot of, but we're seeing a lot more of. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I just follow <laughs> up on the whole single author thing? Because I that's I mean from from uh, neuroscience, maybe I've seen single author papers out there, but what's it like in geology? Is is single author uh, a metric that people um, look for? You do see them, really? but like mo- having multiple co-authors is usually the mm-hmm. norm. I think, at least in enough science, I'm not quite sure what it is. And yeah, I mean, think about philosophy as it dates back to to Socrates and Plato, these thinkers, right? And they spent all day thinking by themselves, you know, mulling over these deep questions and then writing about it. And in some sense, that, that history is still here. You have kind of this idea that the philosopher is the person sitting in a chair, the armchair sitting in their ivory tower, thinking about complex questions until... They've introspected so much that they've come up with an answer, right? That's just the way people think about philosophy. And I tend to challenge that. Complex real-world questions require multidisciplinary teams where you work with others to solve them. And you can't, you can't do that from an armchair. Now, I'm not saying single-authored papers don't have any merit. I think in philosophy, they do, right? You need to posit your philosophical theories that, that support the arguments that you're making, right, and make that explicit, but that alone will not suffice. Mm-hmm. Um, not anymore. Wow, I mean, this is this is a <laughs> a single authored podcast at this point. Where we're glad to hear your insights. I'm learning a lot just like sitting here and listening. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, on the note of uh, talking about you as the author and networking. As you said, that's the next. Uh, I think that GradCast is a great opportunity for really anybody to network. And here at GradCast, we like to highlight what you've done and send people to you if they want to find you or if they just want to find out more about your work. And if they want to do that, where's the best place to find you? I mean, the the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can follow me at Corey E. Goldstein. That's at C-O-R-Y-E-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. I tweet about bioethics, I tweet about research ethics, and I tweet about life as a grad student, which I think we can all relate to. <laughs> so if you'd like a couple memes on what it's like to be a grad student, and if you'd like some up-to-date information on the things that I do, my publications, my work in general, you can follow me on Twitter. Okay, well, that's great. I'm sure people uh, are going to be interested, as I am, and I'm going to check out your Twitter. Um, this has been GradCast. Uh, I've been your host, Ariel Frame, here with my co-host, Gavin Tolometti, and our guest, Corey Goldstein, from Rotman Institute of Philosophy. Um, we are a show produced by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University, and we are available online at gradcast.ca on our website, 
or if you want to listen to us as a podcast, we're available wherever podcasts can be found. That's iTunes, Google Play, and actually Spotify nowadays. Um, if you're listening to us on the radio and thinking, well, what about the radio? Yes, we're on the radio. And if you check, we're at 94.9 FM, CHRW, uh, 6 p.m. every Tuesday. And we're going to dabble in a couple Thursdays nowadays as well. Mm. But Tuesday nights, that's to come. when we're there. <laughs> oh, and if you want to come on the show and uh, sit here as a guest, just like Corey was today, or host like us, uh, like Gavin and I were, then uh, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.